0: this week is a woman who considered the Beatles part of her own family, so much so that she says the band saw her as a sister and their families as a daughter. Frieza Kelly was just 17 when the band's manager Brian Epstein asked her to become his secretary. She was already a Beatles fan and over the years attended almost 200 of their shows at the Cavern. She became a trusted confidant and friend and even after her official work with the group ended in the 1970s she continued to answer fan mail. I'm Ellen Kerwin and I'm Laura Davis and this is the Beatles City Podcast. So it was only recently, Ellen, wasn't it, that Frida Kelly started talking about her time with the Beatles? Yes, so she's always been quite secretive over the years. She's had book offer after book offer and she's turned them down. She's always said, you know, it felt wrong selling her memories with them. But recently she decided to do the documentary Good Old Frida and that was because... Well, what she told us in the episode, it was because she wanted her grandson to have something that he can watch and really know about what her time was like with the Beatles. Obviously, it seems like such a long time ago for her now. So although she mentions it, she really wanted him to know in depth what happened. And what was she like? She was brilliant. She was such a great speaker. I mean, the things she could tell us about the band, it was things that people would never have heard before. Really behind the scenes, in-depth tales about what happened before the world really knew them. Really, she knew them. And they seem to have had a genuine affection for her. They did, and she mentioned in this episode how they used to drive her home overnight and they were just as close to her dads as they were their own dads. And even afterwards, when the Beatles split up, she would still go round to their family's houses and help them with the fan mail as well because there'd be some cheeky fans who managed to get their home addresses. So she'd go and pick up the mail and help them sort through it all. So yeah, she really was there throughout it all. (laughs) I want you to take me back to the very beginning, you know, before Beatlemania kicked in. For our listeners who who may not have seen the documentary as well, if you yeah. were to take them back to the beginning, you know, what was it really like back then before you took up the job? You were a fan first and foremost, is that right? Yeah, I went to the cavern
1: to, um, because I worked in Stanley Street. And the cabin was only round the corner. And I didn't know that there was lunchtime sessions at the cavern. I didn't know anything about the cabin or anything. But uh, there was a lot of young uh, clerks, lads, that worked in Prince's Foods. And it was called Simpson, Roberts & Co. on that day. And they told me about it. And then uh, one lunch hour they took me. And I don't know what day it was or what date or anything. But the actual day that I went, my first time at the cabin, the Beatles were playing. And um that was it for me. I you know, really loved everything I saw and um wanted more and then found out, you know, because you could go and speak to Bob Waller, who was the DJ in the band room and you know, I went in and asked when they were next playing because this was a long time ago. I can't remember what I said or anything, you know. Um this was probably <laughs> maybe fifty five years ago. Um And then I found out, you know, when they were playing and then I went as much as I could.
0: And did you ever believe when you were watching them back then as a fan, being so young as you were and then being really young as well, did you ever think that they would get to the stardom that they did?
1: No, I didn't think they would get to the stardom that they did and I don't think anybody did. You know, nobody had that far an insight. But I did have faith in them and I definitely thought they would be famous one day. But famous to me then because Cliff Richard was famous i thought they could be as big as Cliff Richard
0: well of course what they were doing back then it, it it was really new and fresh it was something that you wouldn't have heard before what was the you know the main thing that attracted you to the band
1: it wasn't just one thing it was everything it was like first of all i'm a girl of 17 you know so you, you walk in and and you see these four good looking guys on stage <laughs> um, so that was the first attraction the second attraction was you know the way they were dressed because they were all in the leather and um I then saw other groups, and none of them wore leather, or they all had ordinary suits and short back and sides, and you know like the shadows and you know nothing like that appealed to me and also the way they were on stage, you know um the the repartee between them all on stage and the fun that was going on with them uh, it it brought you into the fun and um so it it was it was just everything about them it wasn't just one thing about them you know.
0: Were you friends with them? You know, you said you went to the Cavern a lot to see them, so did you become... Yeah, not know-
1: in the beginning. You know,
0: um, I gradually,
1: you know, because I was quite reserved really, I don't know, maybe after four goes at the Cavern or something, I don't know, I asked one of them probably to play a particular record and then I built up confidence in myself and then I started talking to them and... Gradually, I must have said more, and then I knew where they lived, and they they lived near the south side of the city. So, of a time, when I started working uh, for Brian Epstein, you know, they they would give me a lift home and. Uh, if it was raining, because people didn't have cars in those days. You know, you bust everywhere. And I didn't really go a lot to the north side of the city. Uh, I did occasionally, you know, but um, I mostly went to St. Barnabas's Hall in Penny Lane. I used to go there on a Saturday night with my friend and see other groups. I didn't just go and see the Beatles. I mean, I followed the Beatles, but... uh, I I looked at other groups as well. You
0: know. Well, I think that's the thing about about you as the Beatles did get bigger. You know, they started interacting with other people from London, from America, but you were really there from the start and you were from Liverpool. So yeah. I suppose you had a connection quite different to anyone else, especially with the family. Is, would you say that's right?
1: Well, yeah, I would because, um, you know, I, I, I knew them before Brian Epstein came on the scene and then... Um, I had a job in the bank to go to in September, uh, but I put that on hold for a year because, you know, something happened in my family and I just wanted a year to stay in Liverpool. So I carried on going to the cavern and then Brian Epstein, I didn't apply for the job or anything. One of the girls that went to the cavern, her name was, you probably know, Roberta Brown, Bobby Brown. Bobby had started a fan club for the cavern for the Beatles and uh, I offered to help Bobby you know because I had secretarial skills and uh, she worked in a travel agent down by James Street Station at the time so you know I would go down in my lunch hour and get some mail and help out and then uh, everybody knew Brian Epstein you know because he was the manager of the biggest record shop in the in the north of England um but uh, I didn't think he knew me, but he must have noticed me. I don't know, you know, when I was with them. But it was at St Barnabas's Hall. He came in one Saturday night, and uh, there was no drink in those days—alcohol or anything. I must have gone up to the bar for I don't know, probably an orange juice or a lemonade or something. And he was at the bar, and then he just started talking to me. And then he told me that he was um, he was going to start his own company. And uh, he, he actually said the name of it because he worked then for NEMS Limited, which was his father's firm. But he was going to start this company called NEMS Enterprises. And uh, he was going to book the Beatles and uh, probably other groups. Now, I can't remember all the conversation, but it was something like that. And then he said he he was going to take a secretary from NEMS Limited, um, a girl called Beryl Adams, who I knew. But he, he needed another one. Another secretary and he wondered if I was interested in the job so I, I just looked at him and said Well oh, I don't know <laughs> so he said come and see me on Wednesday because this was Saturday night anyway I went to see him on the Wednesday in my dinner hour from Princess Foods and uh, I can't remember what the conversation was or anything but basically um I said yeah I'd like to come and, and work for him. So I handed my notice to Princess. He only had to give a week's notice at that time. I remember handing in my notice. And <laughs> the office manager, his name was Mr. Mould. Lovely, he was like a father figure, you know. And he already knew I followed the Beatles because in those days where we used to put our coats in the typist area, um, the girls in Princess had, you know, pictures of Elvis and Pat Boone and Cliff Richards and I wasn't into any of them but I had a little picture of the Beatles, you know, from, I don't know, maybe Mersey Bees or something and I pinned it on the wall <laughs> and he saw me do it and he said to me, what are you doing? And I said, uh, he said, who are they? Were there. And I said, they're the Beatles. And he went, Beatles, never heard of them. Uh, well, what did they do? And I said, um, they play at the cavern. And he said, oh, I don't know, Frida, you know. And I said, no, no, you will hear them. you you you'll definitely hear them one day. Anyway, when I went into hand in my notice, I told him, I said, oh, I'm going to work for the Beatles. anyway.'" huh what and I said yeah I am honestly and then he went oh you'll he be back within a week I said I don't <laughs> think so <laughs> is, is it true? but nobody was believing me in Princess and in those days as well you know when you left you used to bring in cakes you know because they had yeah. a collection for you when you left <laughs> and I remember trying to persuade them that I was leaving because I kept saying to them I'm bringing the cakes in on Friday honestly I'm bringing the cakes in on Friday
0: <laughs> Is it true that, um, that you're your Dad didn't want you to take the job. No, that, no that's, that's true. You. Oh yeah, um, because like my like any parent, you
1: know, he wanted security for me. And yeah. I'm Irish, and all my relations worked, you know, in the government, you know, like the civil service. My father wants me to work in the civil service. And, uh, his attitude was, you know, you know, secure job and you get a pension and everything like that. And mm-hmm. but when you're 17 years of age, you're not interested in anything like that. Sometimes I think I should have listened to him. I might have a fat pension though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the anyway, um, are I, I knew I'd have to tell him. I'd actually handed him my notice and told by an next time I was going to, you know, go and work for them. And then I thought, I'm going to have to tell, you know, that I'm leaving. Anyway, um, I, it comes over that my father was really strict. Um, but he, he wasn't really. But it, in those days, you know, when your parents said something well especially in our house you know it was law whatever your father said it was law and you didn't go against it you know mm-hmm. and and plus my father you know I know it's not old now but he was like about 44 45 when I was born um, because you know he'd lost two wives and he'd lost two boys before me and then um, I was only a baby when my mother died so he was I can see it now but I couldn't see it then he was like overprotective very protective yeah. of me and um, I just remember saying you know I was going there oh I'm starting a new you know I was full of this you know I'm starting a new job on Monday and oh, and he went um, where so I tried to make NEMS bigger than it was I was saying I'm going to work for NEMS and he went what is NEMS <laughs> And I said, North End Music Stores, that's what the, the name stood for. I said, it's the biggest record shop in the north of England, <laughs> trying to really build it up. And um, I remember him saying, like, you're not working behind the counter, are you? I went, no, I'm going to work in the offices. But he did say, um, as there's anything to do with Beatles. So, the Beatles. <laughs> and I remember... I. Didn't lie. I just remember saying, no, it's a big record shop. And, you know, and where you think you're conning your parents at that age, um, you're not really. Your parents can suss you out. Just like me, I could suss my kids out, you know. (laughs) I used to be like saying, hello, I was a teenager once. I know what you're up to. (laughs) And um, unknown to me, and which is not in the film, he went down to see Brian Epstein, but didn't tell me. Oh, wow. Until, you know, say the next day or the two days later. And then he just like dropped the bomb. He just said, "Um, by the way, he said, that job you're taking, you're not taking it. And I said, I am. I found it in my notice. You know when he went, he said, I've been down to see him. He said, it is to do with the Beatles. Uh, And I've just sang dumb, you know. And he said, there's no future in that. And I looked at him. But when he sort of had a smile on his face, he knew you were a bit in a bit of a winner you know mm-hmm. you could maybe you know <laughs> twist it a little bit so I said what do you mean and he went if you take that job he said it only last a year and I thought got you so I looked at him and I went well let me take it for a year I said my used like I am only 17 well I was always 17 but this time I decided look I'm only 17 you know If it only lasts a year, I'll be 18. And to to sit for the civil service, you had to be 18. So, you know, the government or anything, you know. So I Mm -hmm. said to him, I promise, you know, when I'm 18, I always remember the words. It was, I will knuckle under. (laughs) In other words, (laughs) I'll do as I'm told. so in the end he consented thinking it would only last a year but of course that year lasted 10 didn't
0: it yeah a full decade so mm. you know when you t- when you took the job did you treat it as you know just any other job or did you have to pinch yourself because you know you were really the envy of a lot of teenage Beatles fans yeah, at the time but you,
1: yeah but you, you don't you don't think that at the time or I didn't think it at the time yeah. I didn't pinch myself you know i, I you know probably coming over big headed or anything but I didn't look at it on that, and I wasn't, you know, like a screaming mad fan or anything. I just, you know, was a big Beatle fan and um, had so much faith in them. And you know, no other group touched them. It, you know what I mean? They were up on a pedestal for me. Um, but then working for Brian Epstein, it was like it was just like working as a job in the office. And um, you know, we had other groups on our books. We had, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers and. The big Three and The Foremost and Silla and Biddy J, Kramer and the Dakotas and Tommy Quickly. And so over the next few months, Brian Epstein signed all these artists. So you, you know, I was basically a secretary to Brian Epstein. I wasn't running the fan club then. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just, you know, like there was, there was only three of us in the office it was Brian Epstein, Beryl Adams, and myself. And oh. nine times out of ten, you know. <laughs> barrel would storm off, or you know, <laughs> pretend to be sick, and, <laughs> and you know, I would be left on my own, you know. And but um, you know, it, it was a job. It was in a you know, but it, I I didn't have this thing of like pinching myself or anything, mm-hmm. because the Beatles then they didn't have Love Me Do wasn't out when I first went to work for them. Love Me Do came out in the October and in '62, and I started. I think it was around July.
0: Uh, sixty-two. And what was sort of an, an average day for you in the office, or was the was there not really such thing as a an average day?
1: Well, no, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd done the basics, you know, like we say, out of the two of us, Beryl and I, because I was a lot younger, I was, we say, the junior secretary or the girl Friday, or it was like somebody had to go to the bank. I went to the bank, it goes to the post office to get stamps. It was me. I kept his diary. When contract, you know, I typed contracts, I typed the wages. I just done what Beryl done, you know, and it was like a dictaphone, a tape. He would give you a tape. I didn't do shorthand, although I could do a bit, but I wasn't very good at it because I didn't like it. So i just done general office work, but it was just the three of us. And then sometimes um, NEMS used to close on a Wednesday afternoon and we were on the second floor of NEMS. um, So we were given the keys to the shop. (laughs) So I would have to open up the shop and then lock it again and to go up to work. Because the phones, you know, there's no mobile phones or anything like that, the switchboard in NEMS Limited, was, you probably wouldn't know, I don't know how old you are, but, you know, like plugs and wires and everything. So uh, I had to learn that. So on the Wednesday afternoon, I would go on the switchboard down in NEMS Limited. You know, any calls that came in for Epi, you know, I could take them and put them through to them or put them on hold. or So it was generally just general
0: office work, you know. Yeah, Yeah. so when you when you did um, start managing the fan club, is it true that you gave out your home address? Um, yeah, so- <laughs> yeah. Oh, and when did you decide that was a bad idea? <laughs> <laughs> well, my father went for
1: sick. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, what it was was um, Bobby then got a boyfriend and of course she was doing it all voluntary. We were all, you know, all right, but...
0: Um,
1: I, I don't know when it was. Maybe it was towards the end of 62. Uh, but she decided that she didn't want to do it anymore. I don't know if she came in to Epstein. I know I didn't tell him that she she wanted to pack up. But anyway, she must have either come in or seen him or something. And then he said to me, um, right, you've been helping her. You can take over the fan club. I nearly died. I thought, God, I wouldn't know where to start, you know. I mean, I I, I knew roughly what Bobby had been doing, but on a fan club, you know, that was another ball game altogether. So I actually learned as I went along. But what was good with me, and then again, it's probably been big-headed, but I was a Beatles fan, you know, and I used to put myself in their shoes. I would think, well, if I wrote to the Beatles, you know, what would I want? um, So I used to do my best to fill all the requests.
0: And how many letters did you end up getting to your home address? Your poor dad. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, no, what happened was, like in the beginning, we weren't getting a lot because, please, please, we haven't been released. We were getting, a, you know, quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. but not, nothing like what eventually happened. So I just put my home address out because Bobby had given her a home address out and I thought, so, oh, well, you know, it'll gradually build up. But then um, in those days, when you got a telephone bill, you got, it was like blue on the envelope to say, you know, here's your bill. And then if you didn't pay us, I think it was something like three weeks or if you didn't pay it within a month probably, they sent you a reminder, which was red. And if you didn't pay that within a certain time, they cut you off. So, of course, my father's mail, personal mail, was stuck in the fan mail. So he was getting the red letters before he was getting the blue letters. Oh, no. You <laughs> so can imagine, you know. Sort this out, madam. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, um we uh we had a PO box.
0: Did you have any run ins with the fans yourself? What what was probably the most, you know, bizarre request you had from a fan?
1: One of the requests was hair. And when I was getting people asking me for their hair, I just blanked it. I, I didn't do anything about it. But then I started thinking, well, you know, people then wore lockets, you know, like go lockets around their neck. Yeah. And... um They'd have a little piece of hair, say, you know, your first baby is curl. You know, they'd put in the lockers or whatever. And of course, I used to make the appointments for their hair, to the hairdressers, to home brothers. And and in the end, um, I don't know, say the appointment was for two Beatles, Uh, let's say George and Paul. I can't remember the guy's name. I can see his face, dark guy. I remember going over to him and I actually made the appointment verbally. But I said, could I come with them? and stay while I got the haircut. So he said, yeah, he didn't have a problem, you know. Anyway, when they went over, I went with them. And then we'll say when he cut George's hair, you know, he went to get the sweeten brush or something. And I said, can I have that? <laughs> <laughs> he looked at me as so said, I had two heads. You know? <laughs> and he went... So I put in an envelope and I actually got George to sign the envelope so, you know, I wouldn't get mixed up. And then when I went back to work and when I got a chance to do the van mail, because I was still doing Epi's work in the day, uh, if somebody asked me for some George's hair, well, or Paul's or John's, I'd say, oh, we're enclosing a bit of Paul's hair for you, you know. So I used to do that.
0: That's that's incredible. Did you ever used to get um, people dropping off gifts? Yeah, we had... um,
1: I mean, the fan club moved to London at one point, so I stayed up north. But when the gifts came in, but I went to the parents' houses all the time. I went to Ringo's house every Wednesday for years, even when they moved. I carried on going up to the new house. I went to John's house once a month to help Mimi because they they got mail to their own houses. So I wouldn't do that. That was like their responsibility or their parents' responsibility. But I would help the parents. So I would go to Ringo's house because, you know, um, you know, his mum asked me to help her. Mm-hmm. So I ended up going every Wednesday there. Now the Harrisons were very good. Louise Harrison, George's mum, was excellent. She answered all the letters. But I would go not every week, but the odd Saturday. I would go and I would bring, because they relied on me for stationery, you know, like envelopes and compliment slips and hand out photographs. And I would take the post from them and post it in the office. So if anything that came in for the lads, I, I would naturally, you know, take take them with me. But I used to go out with Mr. and Mrs. Harrison. If I went up on a Saturday, I'd stay for my tea. And then I'd go out with them because he worked for Crossville Buses, they used to have a social club, so I I would go to the social club with them. And he was always trying to teach me ballroom dancing. You know, where I was all I, I was just into jiving, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and he was always trying to teach me proper dancing, you know. And then uh McCartney's, um when Mr McCartney came in the office, in those days he he called uh you had a lot of respect for older people, so if they're over a certain age, you always call them, you know, Mr. McCartney or Mr. Harrison. Or I remember saying to Mr. McCartney, and he said, Oh, Frieda, don't call me Mr. McCartney, call me Uncle Jim. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I used to call him Uncle Jim every time he came in the office. So I'd, go, you know, when Paul bought the house for his dad, I would go over to Rembrandt, and then he got married to Angie. And uh, she was very good at doing the mail as well. And she would come in the office, or, because I I moved offices all around Liverpool. And I remember her coming into North John Street, and she always brought a tin of biscuits, Andy, when she came in the office. <laughs> but I'm still involved with her and, you know, Ringo's family and... You know, I saw Mike McCartney. You know, a couple of weeks ago at the Norwegian yeah. Church, he'd done a charity gig there, the Scaffold. Um, so I'm, I'm still a little bit involved with, with the families still.
0: Well, they were known to call you, you know, like a family member back then. How they called me family
1: members was um, the town hall. You know, when they made the Beatles, you know, Freedom of the City, yes. they were invited to the town hall. And uh, so it was all the dignitaries, you know, of Liverpool and um, the families, you know, they weren't going to invite the office staff, you know, of of NEMS, but they thought that I should go. And um, I remember Ringo saying, "Uh, my mum's putting you on our list because you're one of the family. So I went on the Starkey's list as one of the family. (laughs)
0: That's how I got there. Wow. At what point did did you know, was there a turning point when you just knew that they really had gone global and, you know, worldwide?
1: It it was them. It was the civic reception. Because when you're working in the office and, you know, where they're coming in and out, because, you know, they would come in and out a lot into Whitechapel and Moorfields. They hadn't moved to London then. Because like you've known them for two years and you still treat them the same as you treated them in 1962, although you knew they were you know number one in the charts. But because I didn't, you know, I wasn't a road manager, so I didn't see the madness. You you know, people think you see all these shots of people screaming at the Beatles and everything like that. Liverpool didn't. The cavern people didn't. And they were walking around Liverpool in 1963 because I remember some of my friends, you know, and I'd be sent to the post office or the bank. I'd see, say, two of my friends wandering around Liverpool, and uh, Cavanites always knew who fancied who. <laughs> <laughs> so if I saw, we'd say, a friend called Diane, I knew she fancied John, and um, I'd say to her, oh, John's in the office, or John's coming in later on. So she could be in them's shop, When he came down the lift and she could talk to him, but nobody like screamed or hysterics. And it wasn't until I went to the town hall when those doors opened and the noise from the crowd was unbelievable. Even to this day, I can hear it. And I thought, my God, what's going on? And then when they went on the balcony and I looked out from the the side of a window and Castle Street and, um, You could see a little bit corner of Dale Street. It was chocker. it was just full. And that's when the penny dropped at me. I realised how famous they were, or how big they were. Because I hadn't really, you know, you knew they were famous, but it hadn't really, maybe I was vulnerable or naive or what, it hadn't really dawned on me. Do you know, Mm. I hadn't seen all this until that day. and It was the town hall that had done it for me. I thought, oh my God, they are famous. <laughs>
0: so uh, uh, they were out but and- I
1: thought they were famous when I first saw them on the Empire. I was so made up they were on the Empire. Because, you know, they, they played at the cabin and they were playing, you know, in different halls and everything. And then Epi got them this spot on the Empire. And then he took me. He took me and, and Beryl. And we. in those days you could go in a box. You know, if you were posh, you went in a box. And uh, Epi booked a box for the three of us. I just wanted to cry because they were on stage at the Empire. To me, they'd made it then. Mm-hmm. You know, they were big then and I thought, I can't believe they're
0: on the Empire. <laughs> <laughs> so they were, they were, you know, they were out touring, they were, you know, playing shows across Europe. And did they ever change when, when you would come back and you'd see them, you know, after months or how however long? Would you ever notice any difference?
1: Well, I, I suppose people change, but I didn't see them in that well I did see them anyway because the firm was work it was uh, based in London then and I didn't go to London. Um uh, my father wouldn't let me go to London. Um but I did go down in the beginning every six weeks. He would let me do that. I would go down on a Friday, you know, and work in the offices, you know, in Argyle Street. And then I worked in Apple um, in Savile Row. But I would just go in on the Friday and then stay overnight on the Friday night with Liverpool girlfriends because they'd all moved to London. Like One of my best friends was receptionist in NEMS Enterprises. And she moved to London with them and I would stay with Laurie or I would stay with a girl called Pat Davis who used to go out with Ringo but she lived in I always remember her address, twenty six A, Abbey Road. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now I'm so friendly with Pat. She's in LA and we you know, we keep in contact and and everything and Uh, Ringo then he lived in Montague Square and then he also got a house in Hampstead so I stayed sometimes with him because I was friendly with his wife Mo you know when you were before they got married like I'm really all the early days of the Beatles so when the flower power and all of that, sometimes I'd see them, sometimes I wouldn't, you know, depending on, on who was in the office when I went down. I mean, I saw them at dues, you know, premiers and Christmas parties and when they came home. But I naturally, when the fair moved to London, I didn't see them as much as when we were based in Liverpool.
0: And what were they like really in the early days behind closed doors? How would you sort of describe them as, as a group together?
1: What I tried to get over in the film is like, you know, they're normal human beings. They have their ups and downs like everybody else. And sometimes, like anybody, you know, sometimes you, you're happy one day, another day you just, you, you're quiet in the corner and you somebody will say to you, what's up with you, you know, and you mm-hmm. go, oh, God, I got out the bed, the wrong side, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I didn't treat them like I wouldn't treat anybody else, you know.
0: Have you got like a, a sort of a memory that you're, always hold dear, a fond memory from round those times. Not
1: just one, I've got loads. You've got loads.
0: What's your (laughs) favourite? Have you got one that you can pick up off the top of your head?
1: I don't know really. I mean, I, I suppose like for me with the four of them, the four of them was I loved you know when they went on the Empire or uh, a theatre in Manchester, I would go and I always went backstage. Um, they didn't have they didn't have green rooms in those days. It was just a room backstage, and I I would always go because Neil Aspinall who was their road manager. We used to call him Nell. I'd tell Nell that I was coming because I had things to give them or I wanted them to sign. And uh, I would go backstage and I'd wait till all the people had left the room and then I'd go in and it would just be me and them. And they'd, they'd be talking to each other and, you know, they'd probably get changed and things like that. And I would be... They saying, no, oh, can you sign this? Can you sign that? Uh, I was probably a bit of a pest to them. <laughs> I always wanted them to do things. So I liked that side of it because it was just me and them at the time. Or I, I loved the town hall thing because I then realised how important, not how important my job was, but how how lucky I was, you know, to have the job. Mm-hmm. And I was getting paid for it. Other <laughs> <laughs> girls would have done it for nothing. Yeah. Um And also, you know, when I went to Apple, you know, when I got down to Apple and George being in the office or Richie being in the office, I mean, I saw Richie a couple of years ago and it was like just seeing him a couple of months ago. I hadn't seen him for years, but he made the point of wanting to see me and he saw me before anybody else. And when he came into the room... I was just sitting there, you know, with my partner and uh, his secretary from England, and he bounced in, and it was like, Frida, where are you free? Where are you free?" And I went, "I'm here." And he went, "You're hiding from me." And I went, "No." Anyway, and um, then we were just talking, and you know, it was just very natural, and well, I wouldn't expect him to be otherwise. You know.
0: I mean, if you were to see him again now, it, you know, what would you say? Would it be the same? Do you think? Yeah, because uh,
1: you know, he was that. Like, asking me about, you know, my dogs and I said, oh, I haven't got any more now, you've know, only got cats and he was asking me about his family and, you know, he introduced me to Barbara because I'd never met her before and he asked me how, how my grandson was and, you know, just like, I know it sounds funny, but just talking to, you know, probably, you know, one of your friends. Mm-hmm. You know, but I hadn't seen him for years, but he was, to me, he was still the same, Richie, you
0: know. Do you think the same would be with um, Paul if you were to ever run into Paul again?
1: Well, I'd hope so, you know. um, You know, I haven't seen Paul for a long time. um, But uh, I don't know what people expect of me. I mean, I wouldn't sort of be treating him like, you know, hopefully I would just treat him the way I treated him when I saw him last. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, that's just me. You know, I don't change my personality. or You don't change, do you, really?
0: Have you managed to see them perform since? Yeah, well, I saw Paul
1: um, last time he was in Liverpool. Um, it was about two years ago, I think. or I can't remember the date. And uh, normally, over the years, I've never asked for tickets or anything. I've never done anything, you know. But this particular time, I won't go into details. But somebody had paid an awful lot of money for tickets, and I just thought he needed his head examining, You know, I said, he more money's insensible <laughs> and his money has soon passed." You know, <laughs> I wouldn't pay that price. <laughs> he 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 got them. Uh, he didn't get. You know, he couldn't get them on the internet, and he he paid black market ticket. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. So unknown to him, I thought i will have to do something about this. I was like, we'll say, pushed in the corner. Mm. So um, I spoke to Apple and uh, I said, well, you know, anyway, they put me on. Paul has a family list. So they put me on the family list. And, you know, I said, that, you know, I'll pay normal price for the tickets, you know. And um, when they rang me up to say, yes, uh You know, I'd got the tickets. I I had told them the price. I think the price was seventy and eighty and one hundred and thirty six pound or something for the top ticket. And I said to to Jonathan and Apple, you know, they're the prices. And he said, Oh, Frida, Paul only deals with the top price. And I said, Oh, all right then, I'll pay one hundred and (laughs) thirty (laughs) six this time. And when they came through to say. Uh, you're on Paul's list or something. So I had my credit card ready and I said to Jonathan, OK, you know, I owe you. How much do I owe you? And you went, Frida. Paul went down the list to check who was on the list and he saw your name and he knows you've never asked for tickets before. So he he said, give her four tickets, VIP tickets, and passes to get backstage. Oh, <laughs> so he'd done that for me, yeah. I've never done it over the years, you know, because when I left, I left. I mean, I did go, you know, when Wings first came out, you know, um, on the Royal Course. I saw them there and I saw them down at the dock, you know. um, But I haven't gone to all the concerts, you know, because, you know, I'm a Beatle fan and... I know I probably shouldn't be saying this because you're going to edit this um, anyway, aren't you? Yes. Um, Don't get me wrong, when I saw Paul, I mean, I thought he, he was amazing, you know, for three hours, you know, his age and everything. And he's not like all these other groups, you know, they've all got the water on the stage. And I know the Beatles only used to play, you know, say 20 minutes or whatever, but Paul done three solid hours and uh, a lot of Beatles songs and everything. And I thought it was... You know, good. But when he does Beatles songs, I'm looking for the other three for the harmonising. I know he's got a group and I know the group is excellent and I know he's had them for something like 10 years. I don't know. But they're not the beast. They're not the other three, are they? Yeah. And when I see Paul, I want the other three there because I'm a Beatles fan. Mm. And seeing Paul singing Beatle numbers um, I just think of the others. You know, and I get up I get inwardly I get a bit upset. Yeah. So it's it's just different for me. Um, you know, I don't know if other people well I don't think, you know, they're just so made up to see Paul McCartney, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um but when I saw Paul last time I did when he was singing, um especially a number that you know, that he, he, the others used to harmonise on. Um, I naturally went into the memory box and the visual ch seeing John and George there or wishing that they were there, you know. Yeah. So it is different.
0: So but anyway. There was one point when you had to you had to deal with the rumour that was spreading around about McCartney, um, that he died and replaced, was that in nineteen sixty six was that? I can't Something
1: like sixty seven or something like that, wasn't it? 66, 67 Oh, it was horrendous. In the end, what I used to do, you know, the phone went. Yeah. You know, I picked the phone up. I wouldn't even speak. I'd pick the phone up and put it down again wow. because it was just, it was just ridiculous. The phone never stopped. You couldn't even get a, a line out because it was as soon as you'd pick it up, you put it down, it would ring again. And in the end, I managed to get. I, you know, I rang Mister McCartney. You know, Uncle Jim, and I just said to him, "How are you coping with it?" You know, or words to that effect. Yeah. And he went, "Oh, you know, just Whatever, I don't know. And he went, anyway, do you want to speak to the real one? He's here. (laughs) (laughs) So he'd come on the phone. And I went, oh, what are you causing now? (laughs) What are you causing now? (laughs) But we, I mean, you know, I would, don't get me wrong. I wasn't convinced, you know, it, Mm. it didn't get to me that way. You know, like, oh, it's not Paul and it's somebody else. And I thought, you know, there's some odd people out there trying to, the way they read into music and, you know, read into other things. But uh, I didn't, lucky enough. Probably because, they, you know, had my feet on the ground.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but but, do,
1: but do, that's do, why I lost it.
0: <laughs> do, do you remember where you were when you found out the news about... John being shot, was that sort of like a pivotal moment? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I was actually home in bed. I got a phone call from America um, to tell me what had happened. And I lived in uh, Little Neston at the time. And um, I actually worked up on a farm on the Chester High Road, uh, and also, you know, you have to remember, I had, I have a different name. You know, I still get my married name on. So people where I lived in Little Neston didn't know what I'd done. Mm-hmm. I never broadcasted it or anything. And I worked uh, up on this farm and um, my husband then said, you're best getting out of the house uh, because, you, you know, the phone's going to start ringing and things like that. You know, from friends because I wasn't. Yeah. I was ex-director, and in the end, I said no. I'll go to work because nobody knows I work up here, and uh, I'm in the middle of nowhere anyway. And um, I was sitting in one of the it, it, the guy that I worked for. His brother was a, used to be a racehorse trainer, so they had a lot of um, you know where you could keep horses, stables, and things. Mm-hmm. You know, keep horses. And I, I remember I was in. Uh, stable, just having my lunch with my dog and um, I looked you could see right down it was a big long lane and you know where people say you can smell policemen? <laughs> well I can smell press and these two were walking up the lane and I just I thought how in the name of God if they found me anyway they just came up and um, they said uh, you're free to Kelly aren't you and I went, why Anyway, I can't remember the whole conversation, but it was basically, could you come over to Liverpool with us and can you show us, you know, where he was born and his school? And I just looked at him and my mouth dropped. I said, I think you better go back to Liverpool and ask somebody else to do it. I said, I don't want to even talk about it. I said, you know, this man has died. I need to adjust to this. I said, please, just leave me alone and go away. So I just sent them packing, you know. Because it it was such a shock to everybody. You just need time. Well, I do when something drastic happens. I need time on my own to to basically adjust to it and, you know, get used to what has gone on, you know.
0: Yeah. So, um... No, I, I can
1: I can stall the press if I want to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you smell them out and run away from them. <laughs> <laughs> well yeah, I just say, uh, you know. Yeah. Have you kept yeah. any um memorabilia back from,
1: from yeah. the 80s? Um naturally, you know, I mean all the the records and the autographs and the fan club records and everything, I gave them all away the over a period of time. But things I kept, which probably, I kept a few paper cuttings. And one thing things I did keep was my autograph book, you know, because they did uh, sign autographs to me. And, um, because when the firm was, was moving to London, I thought, oh, I'd better get their autographs to me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, it was George. George got them for me because he knew, you know, I, I would be embarrassed asking them. So uh, I had put my autograph book in among other autographs. And when George was signing the books, and uh, when he came to mine, he, he must have smelt a rat, you know, and he said, Who's uh, this too." I said, Oh, just sign your name. And he went, no, I'll put the girl's name. And I said, no, just sign your name. And he looked at the front of the book and saw my name on it. And he went, is this yours? Oh, you know, worse than effect? I went, yeah, I just want your autograph because you're moving to London and I'm not going. And he started laughing. And he would put it in his pocket. And I went, what do you do with my autograph book? <laughs> and he went, uh, I'll get the others for you free. <laughs> so they all wrote personal messages, you know. So I've kept that and give that to my grandson.
0: Oh, that's lovely. Do you share many stories with your grandson often?
1: Well, not really. No. You know, that's why i have done the DVD. Only for him I wouldn't have done it. So he's got that, you know, for later on in life. What I did keep before he was born and, you know, when I left the fan club and everything, I kept all the Beatle Monty's because, uh, naturally, I wrote in the Beatle Monthlies and I thought, well, if my kids ever have grandchildren... Well, the grandchildren can read the Beatle Monthlies and see what their grandmother had done in their day. But, you know, now I did agree to do the DVD, so Niall doesn't know what his grandmother done. Yeah. <laughs> because it was my daughter, she said, Mum, you have to do something. You know, you don't write anything down. And, you know, this was years ago. And I went, Oh, well, I'm good at talking. I'm Irish and good at talking. And she said, Well, put in the tape. Because Niall, I think you're the granny with the grey hair and the two cats in the corner. And I said, Well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there's died, but I am great, Rachel. You know, laughing, and then I went, "Oh, all right then." Uh, I'll tell Niall about it, and that's how the the documentary was made.
0: Well, thank you very much that's for taking. Okay, I better go. <laughs>